I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. The Board of Control of Cricket in India (BCCI) recently announced equal match fees for its women and men international cricketers. While the reactions has been mostly positive and this move has been welcomed, a behind-the-scenes look actually suggests that this might be inadequate to achieve actual gender equality in pay when it comes to sports. In this episode, my colleague Karl and I, Shri Krishna, will briefly discuss the history of the equal pay movement, why women get paid less than men in sports, and the reason why the proposed hike in match fees by the BCCI is really just a drop in the ocean when it comes to ensuring actual pay parity. Welcome to ATP, Karl. Thanks, Sri. Great to join you on this episode. Very interesting topic that we can delve into. Definitely. So, uh, why don't you start by uh, taking us through the recent move announced by the BCCI, which has been touted as the first step to achieving gender parity in pay when it comes to sports? Yeah. No. In fact, the background to this is that the women's side went on to win a silver medal at the 2022 Birmingham Commonwealth Games, despite losing to Australia in the final. But this brought a lot of glory to the women's uh, game here in India. And I think it was decided by the BCCI that the match earnings for the women's team will have to be equal to that of the men's game. So just to take you through the numbers for the test match format, they would be also, you know, getting a match earning of 15 lakhs per test match. There'll be six lakhs paid to them for a one-day international game, and three lakhs for a 2020 international, right? So, but it's important to note here that these are only match fees, the earnings that they get from playing a match, right? So. This is essentially the pay hike that was introduced by the BCCI, but we can of course get to some of the finer details of what this means. Sure. So I wanted to ask you, since you stressed on the fact that these are just match fees, so what do you mean? Like, how does it really differ? Because as far as BCCI is concerned, it is just paying the match fees to its cricketers, right? Sure. Yeah. So uh, as far as the BCCI is concerned, there are annually contracted players as okay. well, right? So apart from the match earnings that they get, they are on a contract. now and this is where maybe the recent hike you know really there's a lot to you know sort of unpack in terms of the real impact of this is going to be because you know when you look at something like a central contract between the men's and the women's team it's divided into grades so you have a grade a plus you have a grade a grade b and grade c now for in the men's cricket grading slabs a grade a plus cricketer gets about 7 crores right uh, inr you know whereas in the women's game they get only about 50 lakhs in annual salary okay so when you look at the contractual sort of agreements that's not really tackled in this proposed hike like it's only for the match earnings and you know if you go like even further down the sort of grading slabs a grade c cricketer which is in fact the lowest grade gets about 1 crore which is still right? more than a grade which a women cricketer what right? a women yeah. cricketer gets yeah. so Yeah, so that's really where you know a lot of the focus has been on since you know the pay hike was introduced, and yeah, and also in terms of like whether this will in fact have a significant impact on the match fee because all of this is dependent on the number of games they play, right? right. And as we all know, the men, the men's team play more cricket, more cricket. Yeah. They, they play more matches. So, like in effect, 
the women will still end up paying considerably less than their male counterparts, right? Because for the sheer fact that they play fewer games than the latter. Sure, thanks. Actually, these are interesting nuances. And at least in the initial coverage of this move by BCCI, a lot of this, I think, did not come out very clearly. So, a big PR win for BCCI for sure. But in any case, considering very few cricket boards have actually done this, this move from BCCI needs to be appreciated. But what do you think? What do you have to say about it? Yeah, no, no, certainly this is a step in the right direction. In fact, if you take the big three cricket boards, India has certainly sort of, you know, set the ball rolling in bringing out gender parity. But of course, there have been other cricket boards, for instance, Cricket Australia, the England and Wales Cricket Board, even the New Zealand Cricket Board, right? And these have offered domestic contracts to almost all their women players, right? And and not just offering contracts to them, but also ensuring that this is equal to what mm. the men's team earns. And specifically talking about the English Cricket Board, they are planning to, in fact, widen this sort of umbrella of players in their, you know, sort of roster to accommodate all the 80 players that are part of the sort of England, the England women's cricket team. So, in fact, one of the arguments against, you know, this sort of pay hike is that it doesn't really have an impact on the domestic Correct. sort of cricket. Yeah. Right? And maybe we can get into some uh, numbers on that. But by and large, a lot of the cricket boards have thought about this in a serious way. And for India, this is really the first step. Yeah. So, I'm sure like the domestic game will also catch up sooner or later. Even, in fact, like in... India, at least, I'm sure the domestic cricketers are much better paid off. I don't know the case with domestic uh, women cricketers. So, how do they fare? No, so, uh, in fact, this is one of the arguments that experts have uh, sort of talked about in terms of whether this has an impact on domestic cricket. Because a lot of the time, the danger that faces uh, domestic cricket in the women's context is that, you know, a lot of these players, their economic situation is you know quite precarious. So, in fact, they do look for other sources of income and not just from cricket. Uh, so just to give you an instance, the match fees for a domestic women cricketer was recently increased back last year. And now it's about 20,000 per match, right? Mm. If, if you're in the starting level, whereas if you are in the reserves, you get about 10,000 uh, Indian rupees. Important to note here, these are the figures that are also paid to the under 19 mm. you know, sort of boys or men's team, if you call <laughs> While the senior men who play in the mm. domestic circuit, they receive about double or triple of this amount. Right, So that's what we're looking at. Like, you know, in terms of promoting the sport at a grassroots level in the context of women, uh, this probably, you know, doesn't really go that far. And that's why there's a lot left to be desired. Mm. So, you know, let's take a step back from discussing cricket in specific and look mm. at sports generally. So, and in fact, one of the main issues when it comes to feminist movements or gender rights movements has been bridging this wage gap, right? And it applies to sports equally. So, can you take me through like a brief sort of like picture of how did this equal pay movement come about, especially in the context of sports? Sure. No, I think that context is quite important because it's quite recent, right? So, it's only in 1973 when the American tennis legend and, you know, winner of almost 39 major titles, Billie Jean King, right? So she initiated this movement. It was called the Original Nine move. Mm. And, you know, Original Nine meaning it was Billie King along with eight other female tennis players who fought for equal pay for women's tennis. And, you know, this led to the founding of the first president of the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, as it's been popularly called, in 1974. And, yeah, just sort of Talking about the Grand Slams, the US Open was in fact the first Grand Slam to hand the same amount of prize money, which by the way is not the case with most other sports where Correct. Yeah. you know the prize money differs right. across the men's and women's tournaments. 
and then in 2001 and 6 the australian french and the french open followed suit and then finally in 2007 the wimbledon which is the oldest mm. grand slam started to pay men and women the same amount of prize money and i think one of the things that we also need to keep in mind is there's there's considerable media rights like you know share of media rights revenue from these broadcasting rights which also go to the players right? okay so if i wanted to mention this in the previous uh, sort of segment but the money bag of bcci's annual media rights no women players at this point of time get only a 2.7% share as compared to the international men's players who gain about 13% right and the domestic players in mm. fact go on to get at least 10.3% from you know sort of the media okay. sort of right share and this is a this percentage which you mentioned that yeah. is of the overall revenue which bcci makes from all these different streams or is it a percentage of that particular sport this is for the particular sport for the particular sport yeah. then I mean, yeah. for the particular tournament I mean. right right so if there's a world cup happening okay, okay. Uh, there's a media right so men's world cup happens and the correct. men's team yeah. gets around they, 13% they are entitled to 13% of right. the share and if it's a women world cup happens and okay. it's around yeah it's about 2.7 okay Thanks Carl. So let's take a short break now and come back with more on the pay gap in sports. Welcome back to All Things Policy. So Carl, uh, can we also get into the causes behind this, right? Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about why the reasons why women sports persons get paid less than men and what could be the likely reasons as to why this has sustained over time despite you know increased the commercialization of uh, sports so what explains this yeah no i think it's a good question to raise at this point because the commercialization of cricket i think has has come a long way right and we are seeing you know changes rather like would be baby steps but still it is moving in the right direction but by and large some of these commercial and it is a commercial sort of activity right it's a commercial event you know sporting tournament so what generally happens is the promotions for a women's game isn't even close enough to that of the men's game right so one way to look at it is that there's been a general discrimination in how the women's game is promoted which then by extension means you don't get enough viewership not enough eyeballs for that sport and then there's that cycle you know that vicious cycle of you know how less promotions means less viewership which means less revenue for the women sport itself so there's obviously a commercial angle to this the other one is really there's a lot of star value that's attached to a lot of the men's players right, right. take india for instance the brand endorsements that they get is you know like astronomically higher like compared to the women so yeah to an extent fan following star value that is attached to you know men's sports persons does have a factor as well and since i also had pointed out in the previous um, sort of segment about how the prize money right at premier events also differs which is a little uh, baffling to me because at the end of the day the same sport is played yeah. so these play for the same 90 minutes say in a football tournament or in cricket they still play the 50 overs so that's always been a bit of a puzzle to me so of course there is a of course a historical you know sort of discrimination that is a factor in some of these conversations and hence why maybe we'll get into that us women's soccer team case study uh, mm-hmm. in a while which really tells you about how this you know sort of entire conversation has changed you know drastically over the years and one of the things i think we should also maybe talk about in this context is you know how the women's ipl is now going to become a reality right right so this is probably going to happen sometime next year and you know the 
the base price of you know an, an IPL team, women's IPL team is going to be set at around 400 crores each. Wow, so that's a, yeah. that's a that's a fairly large sort of number, and because this tournament is going to be sort of broadcast for a much larger audience, it will result in much larger investment for the women's sport and uh, the revenue that they can make from it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, while it's not been smooth sailing when you talk about gender equality and pay parity in in women's sport, but I think the signals have certainly been in the right direction. Yeah, I think yeah, so it's nowhere near what it needs to be, but I think the conversations are getting yeah, you know, and better. especially in the context of India, one of the things that I can think of is the mm. fact that there exists a lot of barriers, both infrastructural as well as social yeah. barriers to entering sports itself, right? Yeah. And this applies to both men and women. But in the case of women, I'm sure these barriers are even more heightened mm. because of their gender, because of the fact that, you know, the families may not be willing to send their children to sporting facilities or because of the fact that they may feel less than comfortable at the coaching center or the fact that, you know, there is not adequate protection from sexual harassment or gender discrimination that they may face at uh, you know, a sporting facility. So right, this ensures that at the beginning itself, there is screen and there are more screens afterwards. And not all of these are actually about their abilities or talents to come up and perform good at a sport. Mm. And this just hinders sort of good sports persons from coming up, especially when it is about women's mm. sports. So over time, what I think this can do is just bring out some differences in quality, which in turn translates into fan following or uh, viewership. So that's one observation I had on the discussions that we had. So uh, Carl, you also mentioned about this women national soccer case from the USA. So would you like to talk more about it and take us through what happened in this decision? I mean, again, this is a historic sort of lawsuit, right? So basically what happened was the members of the US uh, women's soccer team, I'm saying soccer here because in the US context, it's it's still football, guys. But but, uh, yeah, so they had actually reached a settlement with the soccer federation, right? that guarantees equal pay with the men's team, right? And essentially, uh, you know, uh, at that point of time in the lawsuit, which was earlier this year, it offered players uh, almost millions of rupees back in pay, right? Which they were, which they felt they were entitled to, which is almost 24 like million dollars was the right. settlement. And 22 million dollars of which would go to the players who were part of this suit, which is the women's soccer team. Now, why it is interesting in this uh, discussion of ours is that in the US, the women's soccer team actually done been far more successful than the men's team, right? The men's team, in fact, failed to qualify even for the last World Cup, the last FIFA World Cup. And the women's, again, the soccer players have a substantially large platform than many of the men's players. So in time, you know, uh, what happened was the women's soccer team brought in more revenue than the men's. So their argument was basically that, you know, they need to be paid equally, that, you know, earnings from their earnings from matches, you know, was uh, sort of below par and they wanted to sort of get, you know, greater earnings. And essentially, US soccer had offered the same contract structure to, you know, the both the men and the women. Uh, but apparently it was not, I mean, the women in the soccer team argued that they had not been offered the same dollar amounts, right, even if the contract structure was the same. So, so this lawsuit has now come into effect. And what it essentially means is, now the men's soccer team is playing in the FIFA World Cup, right? And they've just made it to the knockout stage, like yeah. today as we speak. And by virtue of having made it to the next round, they'll get a prize money of $13 million. Now, this $13 million is now going to be split with the US women's soccer team. Right. You know? uh, and that's that's where the lawsuit sort of comes in. And uh, yeah, and because of this new uh, equal pay agreement, they're going to split the prize money. And uh, the two teams, I think, 
with the men's team sort of advancing, they'll receive about $6.5 million, you know, almost as a minimum. And again, the interesting bit here is this $6.5 million that the men's team is going to get for qualifying to the next round is in fact more than what the women's soccer team got for winning both the 2015 and 2019 World Cups <laughs> combined, right? Which mm-hmm. was $6 million. Right. So that itself tells you its own story. But I think, yeah, this judgment is going to uh, have ramifications even at the level of FIFA. So we're just talking about yeah. uh, the soccer federation, but there might be an instance where the women's game is also going to get the same prize money as the men. So yeah, I think that's, I think we're just a couple of years away from sort of, you know, bringing that equality in at least a prize money yeah. that both the games can. And that's a very, I think, unique approach to resolving this issue, right? Like, mm-hmm. make both the teams share the prize money with each other. Yeah. And this, I'm sure like... Almost a sport too. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then money gets reinvested in that particular sport. And because we have better performance, I guess, yeah. over a period of time. So let's come back to Indian sports uh, mm-hmm. for a bit uh, for the last few minutes. And uh, I was wondering if you have thought of or come across any potential solutions mm-hmm. in the Indian context to address this uh, issue that we're talking about. Yeah. No, so as I mentioned in uh, the context of cricket, I think the women's IPL is, is going to be a game changer. right? Mm-hmm. Simply because now they're going to have that platform where their skills will be sort of put to the test and, you know, there's going to be international cricketers. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly going to have a buzz. The tournament's yeah. certainly going to have a buzz around it. So, I think the franchise model has worked and mm. if sponsors can sort of um, get behind women's sport, then that's certainly, you know, one, uh, you know, solution where they actually earn more mm. than, uh, let's say, their match earnings. Like they can have other sources of revenue. And we are seeing that with a lot of sports, badminton for one, table tennis and badminton, for instance, gives equal prize money to both the men's Mm. and women categories. And this has been going on for many years. If you take a sport like hockey, for instance, while there's no equality in the prize money, the allowances and sponsorships are um, fairly like balanced for both the men's and women's. So I think these are three sports that maybe cricket can maybe take a leaf out of and the other sports as well. You would have been aware of the target Olympic podium scheme, right? The tops yes. scheme, right? So, which is like designed to improve the performance of both men's and women's athletes. Now, according to the top scheme, actually the monthly stipend is 50,000 for both yeah, of men course. and women, right? Mm-hmm. So, maybe introduction of schemes that mm-hmm. uh, sort of maintain this parity would be a good uh, step. And yeah, I think, and at the end of the day, maybe if we talk about women's cricket, I think the annual contracts is where there's a lot of it's gap, a sticking yeah. point, right? Yeah. There's still a big gap. And I think if the contracts can be designed in a way that it promotes grassroots cricket, so rather than focus on, you know, the elite level, you start focusing on the domestic rung so mm. that you get more women to play. At least they have a stability of income from yeah. the games that they play. And then you slowly sort of improve their chances of uh, making it to you know the elite level hmm. and then earning uh, cause earning the same as that of as, as that of the men's team so uh, giving a sense of that security to that women's cricketing ecosystem i think will be a lot more conducive for their growth rather than you know just a pay hike which you know just goes on to just solve you know yeah. you know very little but as you had pointed out earlier it's really just a drop in the ocean right? mm-hmm. still have a long way to go yeah right so cup 
few interesting takeaways from whatever you said. First is, of course, uh, commercialization has paid off. Hmm. Uh, the more eyeballs any sports get, there is more popularity, which in turn kicks yeah. off a virtuous cycle. And over time, more sponsorships come in, more money flows in, and uh, players get richer, right? And uh, they get compensated for the efforts that they put in. Hmm. And second is, of course, when government is instituting any scheme, I mean, hmm. they have a legal mandate. They cannot technically discriminate. Yeah. So it's a good incentive. They expand such schemes and, you know, pay enough, uh, I mean, devote equal resources to men and women's sports uh, so that the pay hike, uh, sorry, the pay gap is yeah. non-existent because sure. it's a state and they can't discriminate. And the real problem actually comes when you have private associations, like almost all sports in India are run by private associations and they are sort of engaging in this kind of a discrimination. Mm. So I don't know, like, like you said, the US approach for soccer, that at least with respect to prize money, bringing in some yeah. kind of a parity. I think that's a major incentive, yeah. right? And the justification for them, right? The very fact that they've won World Cups is reason mm. enough to... And I think we often in our conversation in office moan about how the men's team isn't really progressing in yes. tournaments. The women's team actually won, Correct. you know, the Asia Cup. Yeah. Which our men's team couldn't. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, so, it's really about... If you want to talk about outcomes, mm. I mean, if the outcome is to win a tournament... Yeah. They have done that. Exactly. So, you know, so I think the conversation has to take into account that uh, it's not just the inputs that go into that sport, for instance, the broadcasting spectator, but it's also the output of it. Like if, output if of it. women's team is bringing laurels and sort of glory to the country, then yeah. there's certainly there a case to be, to be made, right? That yeah. They have to be compensated yeah. uh, equally or if not, at least better than their current. Yeah. And the last thing which you said was actually very crucial that, you know, instead of looking at ensuring parity at the top levels of a sport, yeah. start off from the bottom level, mm. at the local level, at the club level or at the district and yeah. state levels. Because this ensures that a lot more crowd is drawn in. Okay. At the top, it may be a difference of few lakhs, which doesn't, I don't know, in the longer run doesn't matter much, mm. as opposed to a difference in few thousands at the bottom level, which can make a huge difference yeah. in, you know, drawing women's sports persons. Okay. So ensuring paper parity at the bottom level, I feel is uh, even more crucial mm. than and we look at the top level. Yeah, and right. of course, the sponsorships have to follow. I think that's a yeah. really crucial element. Is if we look at other sports, for instance, barring cricket. But yeah, I think certainly focusing on the domestic mm. sort of domestic rungs will will certainly yeah will have better like, sort of the desired consequences. Exactly. So thank you for having this conversation, Carl. If you have any closing remarks, please go ahead, or else uh, we can close. Uh, no, nothing in particular. So uh, at the Takshashila, we are in fact rolling out a new program called uh, the Graduate Certificate in Liberal Arts, the GCLA. It's going to stick to the same sort of format, which is the 12 week uh, over weekends. Uh, but this one's a little different in that we'll have experiential sessions where there's going to be a wine tasting session to something that's, you know, where you, you get to witness, you know, a dance, a classical dance performance. So yeah, we're very excited to sort of, sort of roll out this program and uh, yeah, if you're interested, do head on over to our website and check it out. Sure, and we'll also link the information about graduate certificate of liberal arts in our show notes. So please do check it out. Thank you, Carl, and thanks to everyone for listening. In. Thanks, Sri. Thanks. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.